We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show with accomplished chess players, authors, personalities, and adult improvers where they discuss their lives, their careers, and share tips about how to improve at chess. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another Adult Improver edition of Perpetual Chess. This week, we are joined by a return guest, friend of the pod. He was on episode 201. Uh, He is the founder and executive director of the Charlotte Chess Center and Scholastic Academy. And in our first interview, uh, our guest, Peter Giannatos, he's contributed so much to chess. He's been a scholastic teacher, a chess player, and he's built just an amazing chess club that we went in depth on in our prior interview, how we built it from the ground up. So anyone particularly interested in, say, business or how to create and build a thriving chess club and community should definitely listen to Peter's interview. And we talked about his adult improver exploits in that interview for about 10 minutes. But this time we're going to go deeper because Peter has some rare accomplishments in the sort of field of adult improvement. Um, In his 20s, while he was building this incredible chess business, uh, he took his USCF rating from about 2100 to 2390, which is around where it sits to this day. Um, That's a level where a lot of chess players uh, start to plateau or at least get stuck. That's certainly where 
I got hung up, so I'm eager to pick Peter's brain. Um, and he hasn't been playing as many tournaments, of course, with the combination of the pandemic and running so many events at the Charlotte Chess Center. Um, but he's still an avid Blitz player. And Peter tells me that his Blitz ratings on both Chess.com and Lee Chess are hitting new highs in the 2600s. So I'm eager to hear all about his progress. And then later in the interview, of course, we've got some other stuff to catch up on with Peter. He, in addition to being a Twitch streamer for the Charlotte Chess Center, is out with a new chess book called Everyone's First Chess Workbook. It's also available as a course on Chessable. It's an excellent primer. Peter, of course, has a scholastic chess teaching background, so he knows what people need to, to build from the ground up in their chess. So we'll be discussing the vision behind that book. I've checked it out, and it's excellent. And last but not least, we'll be talking about uh, what's new with the Charlotte Chess Center. Uh, specifically, there's been a bit of controversy lately about how Grandmaster titles are won. And Peter is a great person to sort of give his perspective on that. So with the long-winded introduction done, let's get him back in here. Peter, welcome back. How are you? Great, Ben. Thank you for having me back. And uh, I was um, eagerly awaiting this interview to catch up a little bit on the uh, chess instruction and improvement side of things. So I'm, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, excellent. And uh, regular listeners hopefully know, first of all, you should listen to the whole interview. But if you're only interested in certain topics, we always have timestamps in the show notes. We're going to go deep on adult improvement, and then we're going to get into these other topics. But Peter, I always find him uh, insightful and entertaining. So let's get to it. So Peter, we took to uh, Twitter yesterday to get a few questions for you. Um, and often I don't like to go too deep into the background of someone's chess, like their beginnings, because, you know, which family rem relative of theirs taught them chess to me is not uh, necessarily <clears throat> the most interesting part of someone's chess career. But JJ Lang, a uh, friend of the show, been on the show as an accomplished adult improver in his own right. And I believe he uh, cut his teeth in North Carolina. He at least went to the University of North Carolina. So I think you guys uh, have some shared history. And JJ went even further back than the, the rating gains that we mentioned and sort of mentioned that you had kind of like a... Um, a steep ascent early in your chess development. So JJ went and looked at your tournament history and then said, so you went from 1015 to 1588 in a 12 month span leading up to the tournament where you drew a 1900 in round one and gain 100 points. So he was just mentioning that you had even uh, before these later gains, just um, impressive results. So could you tell us a little bit about like your entry to chess and how quickly you were improving uh, in those, I believe it was your teenage years? Sure. So yeah, JJ was um, went to high school uh, in North Carolina. So we, I remember playing scholastic tournaments with him. I don't remember if JJ and I ever played a rated game against each other, but uh, but yeah. So I remember playing a few of his teammates um, and and spoiling, I guess, spoiling their. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's how I caught his attention. I'm sure. Um, but um, but yeah. So I started in as as a 13 year old, and I was not a diamond in the rough. I wasn't one, you know, somebody that was playing at home or anything like that. Uh, my first rating was 500, but as you noted very quickly, uh, basically just, I mean, hit all the, the, the rating, you know, sort of the rating barriers that people face with plateau at actually 1600. And I know that a lot of your, your viewers probably, um, I mean, can relate to something like that, getting stuck around 15, 16, 1700. For me, it was 1600 and, um, and I was stuck there for about a year and a half. Um, and then it was just like, I gained right after that, like 300 rating points in, in, in like a year or something. So it was, it was, 
you know, it was an incredible sort of, um, it was incredibly frustrating at that time because I felt like I was just stuck at the 1600 rating level for about a year and a half. So yeah, I'd like to discuss that. But um, as far as what I did to go from a thousand to 1500, um, I would say that at that time it was mostly uh, playing and analyzing games, uh, analyzing my own games with a coach. At that time, it was Matthew Noble, who I, who I referred to um, in the, in the first podcast and uh, he was coming to my school at that time. So I'd play rated game and then I'd, and then I'd come and analyze the games with him. And then at home I was uh, going through uh, game collections. And that was a big, that was a big way that I improved uh, at that rating level because uh, it, it helped me understand what the best players do, where they place their pieces and, and kind of how they think about the game. Even, even between the rating of a thousand and fifteen hundred, I attribute game review, either my own games or the games of others, you know, the, the great players, um, as a way that helped me improve between 1,000 and 1,500. Now, I should say I went from 500 to 2,000 in about three and a half years. So the whole journey was, it seems quick, but it didn't seem quick to me at that time. Yeah. And a couple of things, of course, these things tend to happen a lot more commonly when when you're either a kid or a teenager, that sort of gain. But I think that the lessons that you learned in terms of like grinding through a plateau, like it can still be applicable, even though uh, you might have had a bit more neuroplasticity in the, it, than, uh, than myself and a lot of our listeners might. Now, let me ask you something, Peter, about the uh, studying of games. And as we mentioned in our first interview, uh, your your Twitch channel is highly educational you're you know you know your chess history cold you know all the old school secret soviet guys and uh do a great job breaking down the games but i've heard a lot of people <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> i've heard a lot of people say when when they go through master games that the problem is despite the annotations even a well annotated book they don't understand a high percentage of the moves and i think especially now as you know engines take an even greater primacy than probably during your climb even though it wasn't like super long ago i think now people are a little spoiled so when they see a move they don't understand they just they it bothers them they don't know they don't know how to approach it so what was your approach and what advice do you have for that sort of conundrum peter well at that time my approach was just to work through it because I didn't know better. I wasn't, I wasn't a chess coach and I didn't really have perspective on improvement. I just wanted to, I just wanted to do chess and I was picking up what I could from every game that I looked at. Um, it wasn't like, um, like a lot of your adult improvers, they seem to have these very, uh, you know, sort of strict regimens about how they approach things. For me at that time, it was like, I would review a game and then take what I could from it. Now, as a chess teacher, as a chess coach, and somebody that has perspective looking back, um, I would say that the lower your rating, the further back uh, in chess history you should go when you're when you're analyzing your games, uh, when you're analyzing famous games, because I feel like it's much easier to understand the games of, let's say, uh, Paul Morphy or Steinitz uh, for a 1,200 rated player or 1,500 rated player than it would be to analyze a modern game of Carlson or Anand or, or basically any of the modern, you know, the modern world champions. And, um, and I think the reason, one of the reasons for that is the disparity in strength of players uh, at, at those times, you're able to see the ideas carried out kind of clearly. Whereas in modern games, the players are so good 
that they know all the, the basic ideas. So it really takes, you know, they're really squeezing, uh, you know, water from a stone in most of their games. And so for the lower your rating, the less you appreciate or can understand uh, the, the more microscopic things uh, in a chess position. So I would say that looking back at it, if I was advising the, you know, Peter of then say like, okay, look at the games of Paul Morphy, go back in history, look at the games of Paul Morphy, um, look at the games of Steinitz, look at the early masters to begin with. Their games are a little bit uh, easier to understand because of the uh, disparity in strength of players and the knowledge gap between the players. So um, that would be my recommendation. At that time, I didn't, it wasn't like I was saying, oh, I don't understand this. Let me plug it into the computer or I don't understand this. Let me take it to somebody and have them explain it to me. I just understood what I could and then, and then moved on, you know, based on my ability at that time. Yeah, that's good advice. And I I agree with what you say about uh, starting with the classics. I've mentioned on the show a few times and interviewed I am Willie Hendricks, his book on the origin of good moves kind of that's the sort of the overriding thesis of the book is that if you trace the history of chess, you trace the development of ideas. So if you're newer to chess, it's great to start with the old games. I know that Neil Bruce is a big fan of um, first book of Morphe, which I'm not familiar with. But if you're looking to study Morphe, obviously, um, some some book about him or even just downloading his games from chessgames.com and just kind of slowly going through them. Or if you're a video learner, just look up Agadmater's series or whatever it may be. Um, but let's bring it forward, Peter, because then you got to sort of uh, where where the rubber meets the road for a lot of people, what you've done in the past 10 years. And of course, in your 20s, I mean, some people manage to maintain their, their interest in competitive chess throughout their lives. But it's also a time when a lot of people who are scholastic players uh, competitive chess can go to the back burner, even for someone like you who makes their living from chess, uh, the actual competing side um, can be a challenge. So before we get to the improvement, I want to hop into the next uh, Twitter question. And this one is from a longtime friend of the pod, Peter Newhall. And Peter has been echoing something that I've been seeing people talk about more recently in uh, sort of the chess discourse. Uh, shout out to Avtek Gregorian of chessmood.com. He, he, you know, when he um, does like intro calls with the the new students. He always says to start with the why. And uh, Grandmaster Noel Studer wrote a, a great post about how important it is to know what your motivation is for improving. Um, so Peter asked you, Peter, what was your motivation, especially in your 20s? Why did you decide to keep going? And a little perspective on like how hard you were working on your game during that period might be helpful. Yeah, so um, for me, it was a personal achievement um, type of type of situation. So um, I started late. Um, I started late, you know, I mean, for somebody who is, uh, who later became a master, I definitely started late uh, in life, you know, as a 13. Started 13, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, and when I graduated high school, I had hit, I had hit uh, 2000 at some point, but then I had dropped below. So I was about 1950 or so whenever I went to college. And um, I took a, I took a year off, um, I, I mean, of any serious kind, I think I still played at the club, at the local, at the local club uh, during that time in the weekly rated games, but I didn't play any weekenders or any, any serious events. I kind of was taking a break and my good friend who also became a master, Dominique Myers, um, kind of drug me out of, let's say mini retirement and said, you know, like come back and, and play the North Carolina open with me and come, you know, like we'll go to, we'll go up to Greensboro together and we'll play the North Carolina open and and so uh, that renewed my interest in the game. And 
I think I, I beat a master in the second round, I think as like a totally retired, like, I mean, not, not really <laughs> caring about my game. And I, and I, and I didn't, I wasn't playing online blitz um, or anything like that. It wasn't as popular as it is now. And, uh, and I was like, you know, maybe I, maybe I, you know, sold myself short. So uh, I kind of uh, renewed my interest in, in the game. And I said, you know, I should do this for me. I should really, I should really try to become a master uh, if possible. And yeah, it was a personal achievement. And it was also, you know, I'm always motivated by, you know, people telling me like, I can't do something or that it's Mm -hmm. kind of not possible to do something. So it was also a little bit of a motivation to say like, okay, yeah, I started late. And most people who do start late don't become masters or whatever. But you know, I'm going to show them <laughs> that I can actually do that. But it was more, you know, it was more for me, but it was a little bit to, you know, to just kind of prove to people that it was kind of possible. You know, I was motivated by competition. Um, one of the reasons why I don't, I don't play anymore is I don't play classical chess for enjoyment. I play to win. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and if I'm not, and if I'm not studying the game, I don't have any expectations that I'm going to go into a tournament and do well. Why should I, you know, why should I, why should I believe that I'm aging like fine wine, just sitting around, uh, doing business things or listening to, you know, um, you know, listening to podcasts unrelated to chess, you know, the reason I don't compete is like, I'm not going to go uh, be everyone's punching bag. Yeah, I learned that lesson the hard way. That's what I that's what I did in my twenties and thirties. Is I wasn't wasn't a competitive chess player, but I would show up once in a while. And uh, it's it's not like riding a bike, really. But go on, sorry. Yeah, not at all. And and I, you know, because of my competitive nature, um, I don't want to play play in a in a classical tournament if I'm not working on my game because um, I am a competitor at heart. So if if my if um, if I just want to get my fix playing chess, then I can do that locally at the chess club, you know, playing casual games of blitz games with my friends, you know, who are similar in, in strength, you know, Naroditsky's here. So I love playing <laughs> chess with him. And, um, and, uh, and then I can play online for additional practice. But one thing I think we'll talk about a little bit later is, you know, you have to work on your game to improve. I mean, it's such a simple statement, right? Like you have to work on your game to improve. And we'll talk a little bit about how exactly that is but at this present time i'm not playing in tournaments because i'm not really working on my game you know online blitz is not really working on your game um and i know that was one of the questions um on twitter as well uh which was how how much online blitz helps so we can get into that but um yeah so basically i'm not really working on my game right now which is why i'm not playing classical chess and yeah, you ha- you have to just regularly uh, do chess, and uh, we can talk about, I guess, the specifics. Yeah, let's uh, hear what you, you did. Like. Yeah, so so at that time, as you know, you know, right out of college, I, I made master the same year I started the chess center, and the same year I graduated college. All all of that happened in the same in the same time. So in college, I basically went from nineteen fifty to twenty two hundred USCF. Something, something like that. Uh, and so it took, it took quite a bit of time. And one of the best things that happened to me during that time was um, I worked with uh, coach uh, Alexander Shabalov. That was 
who I was working with at that time, and Ben Feingold, who had uh, worked for the Chess Center for a few quarters um, when he had a sort of off season in St. Louis. That's when he was in St. Louis. He he had not yet started the uh, the Chess Center in Atlanta with his wife Karen. Um, he was here in Charlotte, and those are the two best things that happened to my game because um, I learned so much from them that was not really, let's say, um, there, there wasn't a strict lesson, let's say, that I learned from. You know how like you you read a book and you read a chapter and it's, let's say it's on uh, hanging ponds or it's on isolated ponds or whatever. And, and you feel like you can, like, oh my God, okay. So, you know, that I have an increased knowledge of that topic because I just read this chapter out of the book, right? It wasn't that type of knowledge that I was learning from Shabalov and Feingold. Um, they were really helping me with how to think about the game, how to think like a stronger player. And that's something that, at least in literature, I had not really uh, come across something as powerful as simply working with the strong players that I was working with. And um, so during that time frame, I attribute a lot of my growth to analyzing games and positions with Shabalov and Feingold. And I know that a lot of your guests, I think I was listening. I mean, you just published the Marcos video today, yeah. uh, but I was listening to it a little bit in the morning. And he kind of talks about, you know, how to think like a better player is such an important uh, element of the game. And I only really ever learned that, Ben, from working with these great players, you know, um, and they were both great coaches as well. And um, Feingold, particularly for kind of the psychological aspects of chess. I'll give you a kind of one of the stories because, you know, awesome. everyone sees Feingold as this like big, goofy, like <laughs> GM who's like on Twitch all day. And I kind of see him that way, too. But he's but he's a friend of mine. And so I see him as a personal friend. And I also see him as a chess coach. He had served you know, many times on like the world youth chess team uh, that, that we would send, you know, to, to represent the U.S. And he's a great coach. So I remember uh, he was covering for me at the at the chess center and I was going to go play in Reykjavik, um, Iceland, the Reykjavik Open. And before I left, he said, here's what's going to happen, Peter. You're going to beat somebody that you are not used to beating. OK, so you're going to you're going to upset somebody big. OK, and I was about twenty one fifty feet at the time. He said, you're going to upset somebody and here's what you're not going to do when that happens. Now, I mean, this is all hypothetical, right? He's like, he's like, here's what you're not going to do when that happens. You're not going to call me excited. <laughs> you're not going to type on Facebook how you just defeated a strong player that you normally don't defeat. You're going to beat them and you're going to act like that's normal. And you're going, you know, you are going to, when you, when you upset this player, whoever it happens to be. You're going to pretend it's just another day in the neighborhood, okay? And no book was ever going to tell me that. And, you know, and that's more of the psychological aspect of the game. And so I did. I, I, I beat an international master. I think it was for the first time ever. I had, I had defeated an, an IM in a classical game. And I didn't call Ben because he was following the tournament. He was following the tournament yeah. online. So I didn't even call him. I was like, I want to call him. I was just like, this is like a celebration. You know, like I, I, this is amazing. Right. And I wanted to call him, but I didn't call him and I didn't type him 
I didn't, you know, I didn't text him or anything like that. He just said, listen, you need to treat defeating better players like it's going to happen regularly. And I would say that, you know, that fits into the kind of confidence. I know one of the questions on Twitter, I don't remember exactly, is like, how much do I attribute to psychological aspects of the game? Yeah, um, Jim Jones, yeah. Yeah, you have to you have to have skill. But the psychological aspects of competition, any competition, chess or otherwise, are super important. And uh, Grandmaster Ben Feingold had helped me with that a lot. It wasn't just that circumstance, but I wanted to share that story because I still remember it vividly and it stuck with me. Like, okay, you're going to beat somebody. And later, later on, on my path to defeat a master, I had defeated GMs over the board, right? In classical games. And I didn't throw parties for myself in the evening or, or send group messages to my friends with the game, uh, ask, you know, showing it off. I was just like, this is going to be a regular thing for me. You know what I mean, and that and, yeah. and that's what Ben Feingold, that's what Grandmaster Feingold taught me, and uh, that was such a that was such a big um, that was such a big deal for me. Uh, so I, I hope that touches on a little bit of the psychological aspects of the game, and when you're competing against illustrious opponents, it's it's hard to believe you have a chance if you've never faced them before, right? If you've never faced IMs and GMs over the board and you're like a master, you're used to playing experts and regional masters, you know, where you live. And then all of a sudden you're playing what I would consider professional players, IMs and GMs. It's like, you're, you're like starstruck. You're like, Oh my gosh. Like, like actually the person who I defeated has, you know, has multiple books and that type of thing. So I already knew who they were. It wasn't like random, European gram, you know, European yeah. AM. And um, yeah, so the psychological aspects of the game, believing that you can actually win, um, and even though you know somebody's better than you, such a big deal. And treating treating an upset victory not like it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience, but that it's going to be a regular occurrence. I think that's a huge piece of advice related to psychology, which I directly learned from Grandmaster Feingold. Awesome story. Shout out to Ben. Yeah, there's, I think it was Herschel Walker who said, went like, in, this is an NFL, former NFL player, when you get to the end zone, act like you've been there before. Um, some former NFL running back. But anyway, Peter, maybe we could sort of broaden that because obviously not everyone has access to legends like, uh, well, they do actually have access to Ben Feingold, um, along with uh, the, the thousand people watching or whatever thousands it may be at a given time or uh, Grandmaster Alexander Shabalov. Um, so how would you apply that to say like a 1400 hungry adult player where, okay, they could hop in on a Grandmaster's Twitch stream and some of them might only have you know, 50 viewers. So maybe you can pick their brains, but um, would it be just as helpful for a 1400 to be hanging out with say 1800s or does it need to be like strong titled players if you're looking to sort of absorb the culture and the way that stronger players think? Oh yeah. No, I think it's all relative to your strength, right? So um, if you're 1400 and you're able to place yourself around a group of 1800s, right? You will you will become a better player by by being around people who are better than you. Um, I don't know how much an eighteen hundred, let's say, could advise on chess psychology and some of the deeper points in the game that take a, a long time to to kind of learn. But certainly, you would become a better player by learning from, like, learning chess from them. Because uh, I shouldn't I should say that while psychology is a very important part of the game, uh, it isn't the most important. The most important is skill, 
And if you're a 1400 and you can surround yourself with 1800s, great. You will learn the skill part from them. I mean, you know, to, br- to sort of bridge the gap between 1400 and 1800. I mean, in, the, in this hypothetical that we're talking about. So yes, I, I also greatly learned uh, by being around people who were better than me. And what I would do is I'd pay attention, right? It, I mean, you know how this is, Ben. I mean, you lose enough games to somebody, uh, whether it's a blitz game or whether it's classical games, you lose a lot, you lose enough games. You kind of wake up and you're, and you start to notice things. Why am I getting whipped every time by this guy who's two or 300 points higher rated than me? How is that possible that I'm not getting a single game off this? And then, so all of a sudden, whether you want to believe it or not, you start paying attention. What are they doing better than me? Oh, I'm always losing out of the opening. Oh, I'm, I'm getting tricked with tactics, right? So one of the things, my advice, other than placing yourself around stronger players, which is a great piece of advice, you know, be alert, try to discover how they approach the game, how they think about the game. I think that's relevant for all rating levels, you know, whatever your rating level is. But I would say that one of the things I see with adult improvement is just that not all adults um, have the desire to step out of their comfort zone or do something new. And um, sometimes too much information is a bad thing So when it comes to adults because a child isn't going to listen to, let's say, your adult improver podcast or read Twitter forums or I just recently discovered this so-called chess punks hashtag on uh, <laughs> yeah, you got asked on, about that. Shout I guess why am punk. I not a part of this? So yeah. um I just recently clicked through some of their stuff and it seems like a group of adults that you know are eager about in, about learning the game better and improving and that type of thing. But over the last decade uh, I've I've coached a lot of adults and we have a lot of adult members coming into the club and I would say that sometimes too much information because adults Adults understand and interpret information better, right? Like than than a child. You start talking chess psychology and uh, chess improvement with children, it's like, eh, it's yeah. like, just let me go play. Um, but when an adult wants to improve, they're like, oh, you know, I listened to this podcast and so and so said they read that book, or you know, I need to do. 30 minutes of this every day and then 15 minutes of that every day. And you know, it's like, Oh, Neil Bruce cut his, uh, cut his, um, you know, diagrams out of the book with red scissors. So I'm going to go to family Dollar and get some red scissors. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? So, yeah, no, so I it's like, you, you know, so it's like, so it's like, so sometimes too much information can be misleading. It's like, it's like for adults, one of the, one of the things that I've noticed from the outside and, and, um, uh, and is is the what I call the learner's mentality. I'm sure it has a, a, a real name, but I call it the learner's mentality. And I feel like the older you get, including for myself, the older you get, the less willing you are to step outside of your comfort zone, uh, accept criticism, and learn a new way of doing things. And so an adult may be told by a higher rated coach, let's say... I think you need to, I think you need to play something other than the London system, right? Because that's super popular with adult players, right? I think you need to play something other than the London system because I want you to learn different pawn structures. Let's say, right? So, so that's what let's say a higher rated coach may tell a 1459. But they go, Well, I don't have a lot of time yeah. because I'm working and say, okay, 
So the fact that you don't have time and the fact that you're an adult, what gives you a pass on chess improvement? Like you're supposed to improve because you don't have time and because you're unwilling to change. Like, how does that work? Why does being an adult, why, why does that, uh, you know, exempt you from the hard work that everyone else has to put in, you know, to, to learn the game better, right? So we can talk about various ways that I changed my game into my 20s to be able to maintain my chess skill and not lose it. But when you're talking about growth, you have to be willing to step outside of your comfort zone and try and learn new things. I feel like adult players, again, including myself, I'm throwing myself into this category. The older I get, the less desire I have to change what I'm doing in anything, uh, the less desire. But, you know, if we're trying to say, okay, an adult wants to improve just like a child improves rapidly, then we kind of have to follow a similar path. We have to be willing to step outside of our comfort zone. And the fact that you don't have enough time because of life, that life gets in the way. Um, what does that, what does that mean? You know, cause like, it's like, you don't have time, but yet you want to, let's say, improve at a rapid pace, but why? Right. So like what, what exempts you from the amount of time, let's say a 13 year old puts into the game and then, and then gains 200 rating points. Right. So I would just say that one of the things I've noticed with adults is um, not, not all adults, but I'm just saying like one of the things I believe that sets, that sets back adults is, um, you know, like I said, the, the, the unwillingness to, to try something new, to step outside of your comfort zone and uh, not always being uh, willing to accept critique of mm -hmm. the things that they're doing. And uh, that may be a bitter pill to swallow for a lot of people that are watching. They might say, I'm not one of those person. Uh, you know, I'm not one of those people. And then I analyze their game and I say like, why did you do this? And they're like, you know, cause that made me happy or they made right. me comfortable. And I'm like, yeah, but don't do that. And they're like, well, I felt safe. Yeah. That's what I felt like doing. I'm like, okay. Right. So I would say, keep your mind open to learning and, when you choose a coach, right? So if like, let's say Ben, I'm like, okay, Ben, I want you to teach me, right? So bad, bad choice, right? But I want you to teach me. And then you're like telling me to do something, right? I have to respect you enough to say, I picked you as my coach and I trust you. You know, I trust you that you're going to help me and, uh, and I'm going to listen to you. And even though I'm an adult and even though I have a life and even though I have all this, I'm going to listen to what you have to say. Right. And I'm going to be willing to change and adapt, even if that means my rating might fall 50 to 100 points while I'm adapting. Um, I'll give you a story related to that. When I started working with Shaba, I was about 2100 and I had the hacker repertoire that you <laughs> like you couldn't even imagine. OK, everything was a gambit. OK, and I was you know, I was already 2100. So he's like, so I'm playing Evans Gambit. I'm playing, you know, the, the white side of the of the, the two knights defense, you know, like with D4, uh, I'm playing Mora gambits. I'm playing just all sorts of stuff. I'm playing the Benko gambit every game. I'm playing the Alakine and Perk defenses again. You know, I'm just playing hacker chess. Okay. And Shaba's like, Peter, enough of this. This, this is, this is coffee house chess. Okay. You want to be a master. You got to play real chess. And I'm like, what's that? Like, I don't know. I was kind of teaching myself. I'm like, what's that? 
And he's like, well, you got to play classical chess. You got to put your pawns in the middle. I was like, pawns in the middle. I was like, I've never done that before. You know what I mean? I was like, I've never played a defense where I have a pawn in the middle of the board. I always played the provocative defenses, right? So what happened? Well, he started making me play the French with, with black just to have some center control, but not have, let's say, the amount of theory, let's say, E4, E5 has um, you know, or the Sicilian. And uh, and then, he, you know, I started playing classically against D4, Queen's Gambit decline. And I went down. A little bit during that time. I got stuck in the 2100s for, I can't even count, maybe three years. But, oh, by the way, with white, he made me play the Roy Lopez, which I believe was the most boring opening ever, right? Mm-hmm. Enough, you know, it's like, what what's happened? Where is my checkmate? Okay. So, um, and I, you know, I started playing the Terrache French and just, you know, just, just very, let's say professional openings, you know, pe- things that real people play. Okay. And um, I got stuck while I'm trying to learn this new way of playing, you know, for about, but, but, you know, I trusted Shabalov, right? I'm like, this is the guy I picked for my coach. He's a grandmaster, several time U.S. champion, Soviet trained, literally trained by Mikhail Tal. Yeah. I'm amazing. like, yeah, legend. Yeah, exactly. So I'm like, I have, to, if, if I want to improve and I was in my twenties at that time, right. Cause I, I made master when I was 23. USCF master when I was 23. I was in my 20s. I'm like, this sucks. Like, I'm totally out of my comfort zone here. I'm playing things I don't fully understand, but I I trust Shaba, you know? And so I did that. And then when I made master, it was like, boom. I, I gained, you know, little by little. It seemed like every tournament I was playing in, I I was gaining 20, 30 points at a time, right? Once I finally, so my plateaus were 1,600, and 2100. Those were the plateaus in my life. 2100 was because I had a massive change in the way I was approaching the game. I had never played in that way. But then once I overcame that, it was like, boom, it was like, it was like, it gave me, it gave me another 200 rating points when I started playing what, what, what Shabba called real chess, you know? And, um, if I was stubborn and didn't want to change, get out of my comfort zone, I felt, you know, I felt like, 70 rating points. It hurt. You know, I was like, I was questioning, like, is this really what I should be doing? But I understood the game better by trying these more standard openings with more rich pawn structures and positions. And it helped me improve in the long run. As you know, man, the, the, the process for improvement takes time. So when I look back at it, I can't say that just these few things, right, are what helped me become a better player at that time. Uh, I just know that they were in very important moments in my chess improvement, right? I was, I'm, I was still analyzing games. I was still um, doing tactical puzzles like Vola Keaton's perfect your chess. You know, I remember doing that when I was about the 2100, but these were the things that changed me as a player. These are the things that took me outside of my comfort zone. Right. And, um, my advice to adults is be willing, be willing to do that. Even if that means your rating graph isn't just a line up, you know what I mean? Because when you change something and when you get outside of your comfort zone, you're not just going to understand it. You know, it's going to, you're going to, you're going to feel like a fish out of water whenever that happens. And your results will also reflect that. And it might be discouraging, but it could be what you need, um, to, to make the next jump, you know, just, just 
from whatever plateau you're at, at, you know, at the moment, because a lot of people get stuck and they're like, what should I do? And I'm like, change something. I don't know what it is because everyone's reasons are different, but change something. Right. And, and that's uncomfortable for anyone, but it's a necessary part of improvement. Awesome advice, Peter. It really resonates with me personally. Um, and I, I've been so transfixed. I forgot to take a break and hear from our sponsors. I want to do a bit more on adult improvement, Peter, but first let's take a quick break. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by aimchess.com. If you haven't checked out aimchess.com by now, what are you waiting for? What aimchess does is it collects your games from the major chess sites and then gives you actionable advice of how to improve your game. It might be to work on a specific opening or to get better at end games or improve your time management or whatever it may be. And then it gives you related puzzles to help you improve that specific skill. They are constantly improving the site. They recently added blindfold tactics, time management training, common checkmate patterns. So there's so much to do there. If you decide to subscribe, be sure to use the promo code PERPETUAL30. Details are in the show notes for aimchess.com. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by ChessMood.com. ChessMood is a subscription video service by a team of GMs headed by Grandmaster Avchek Gregorian, who you can hear on episode 192 of Perpetual Chess. They offer a comprehensive video library featuring an opening repertoire for both colors, as well as courses on middle game and end game mastery. They also have great free content. Avtech has an insightful blog, and they have a YouTube channel featuring daily lessons with a grandmaster. So all the links you need if you want to find out more are in the show description or just go to chessmood.com and have a look around if you're interested. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we are back. So, Peter, this has been amazing perspective. I think it might be a wake-up call for some people or at least um, inspiring, if nothing else. Um, I certainly feel that way because I've been switching my opening repertoire. And, uh, yeah, my results, you know, I, I don't know the structure is cold yet. And it's it's been a learning curve uh, for sure. But one thing I wonder about, Peter, just to sort of tie it together, is at, especially at this 2100 plateau, the more recent plateau, uh, you mentioned you mentioned in our prior interview and in this one, Vola Keaton's Perfect Your Chess, which is a great advanced, we should say, uh, tactics book that I mentioned on the last interview is out of print. But I think it is available in Kindle, possibly. Um, but more importantly, Peter, the, the question of time that you've alluded to many times, like how much time, I mean, you've got a life where you're sort of um, immersed in chess, obviously, but how much time were you actually grinding? How much time were you studying during uh, this period of breaking through the plateau and ascending to a near 2400 USCF rating? Yeah, well, that's um, that's hard to know because even though I was in chess, um, uh, the vast majority of my day was spent uh, doing business related things, you know, operations, um, style things. So, um, that actually can take away a little bit from your desire to do chess for yourself, right? So when you're around chess all the time, giving lectures, uh, teaching classes, directing tournaments, whatever it is, sometimes when you have free time, you don't want to do chess. So it, I, I'm not sure if that, you know, if those, if being around chess, let's say, uh, helped me. It certainly wasn't like, um, 
like I was sitting at the chess center reading books and studying all day instead of running a business. I was, I was running a business. And it, when I had time, uh, I was studying the game and, uh, and I was playing the game. So I would say probably on average between 2100 and, you know, 2390, um, I was probably spending uh, an hour a day Okay, that's um, not at that time. And, uh, and how often were you competing? Uh, not, not, I wasn't competing that much because that, that was to me a huge time commitment and I couldn't always break away and go somewhere. So I was playing, I would say one big event, like a, uh, a large open event, you know, let's say five or more rounds over a weekend, maybe a once a quarter, you know, when I could get away on a holiday weekend or something like that. And I was when I was taking lessons from Shaba, that was 2100 to about 2250. Um, we would meet for one two hour lesson a week. So that's how we did. So most people, you know, just kind of have a one hour lesson. Shaba was like, no, we need a two hour lesson. And it wasn't like he was just, it wasn't like he was trying to get money out of me or whatever. He's very reasonable. It was just that he thought that if we could, if we could work on chess for two hours, that I would be more encapsulated. Like I would be kind of like immersed in the chess that we were looking at. Not like, oh, we just got started talking about something or analyzing the games. And then before we know it, the hour's up. So he thought a two-hour lesson was more beneficial. And I agreed. And what I would try to do for him is I would try to have games for him to review. And as a coach... Well, as a kind of former coach, I don't really coach anymore. But as a coach, um, one of the things that I always recommend to uh, to students is if you're going to hire a coach, have specific things you want to talk about. And in a, and the the most specific thing that you could possibly talk about with a coach is your own games. And uh, otherwise, you know, having a coach for a lot of people can actually be a waste if they're not playing if they're not actually playing, because what you really need aside from the generic lessons that you could read or learn through videos is you need a, you need a deep critique of your own games. And, um, so yeah, so, so that's what I was doing. So I had, I had an hour a day where I was studying various things, um, you know, openings and, I didn't really study that many end games. I have to be honest to with you. Um, I would love to say that I did and that I, you know, that would make me a complete player <laughs> or something. But like I, like I told, like I tell people, I only have Devretsky's end game manual to look cool when my chess friends come right. over. Yeah. I never actually read any of it. So, and that's the truth. Um, but um, I spent a lot of game, a lot of time on my opening uh, play and I never really played, you know, too hardcore theory, but I, I tried to keep up my opening so that I would feel comfortable going into a tournament. Like, Hey, I, you know, I've studied, I'm not going to be surprised. I'll be fine. And the Vola Keaton book I solved uh, over a summer with my, with my friend, national master, Dominique Myers. And what we would do is so, because as you mentioned, the puzzles are hard. I mean, as a 2100 player, I would say, and we were both 2100 at that time. I would say that we only solved about 65% of the the puzzles correctly. And what we would do is we just, we'd, we'd meet up at like a coffee shop and we'd set the clock for 10 minutes, like a chess clock. And 
when the 10 minutes expired, we would tell each other what we thought the answer was. Okay. And then we would look. And in many cases, uh, one of us was right, or we were both right, of course, but in many of the cases, we were both wrong. And that was a wake up call for me. I'm like, dang, like, I, I need to, imp I need to improve at this. And Vola Keaton's book, and, and I should say that it probably doesn't have to be Vola Keaton's book, right? So the fact that I refer to it is just because I did it, right? It's not to say that any other similar book, like Romaine Edwards' book on calculation or Jacob Agard's book on calculation, which are which are great as well. I mean, I flipped through them. I haven't solved all of the puzzles in them. In Vola Keaton's book, I solved all of them. Um, so it could be another book, but I would say that that was what I needed at that level to be able to to be able to calculate like a master. I was not visualizing and calculating like a master um, yet. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, so you did the, you did the hard work and again, similar to what you were saying earlier about like switch things up. And I've mentioned many times, that's, that's where I struggle to this day um, is doing the, the, you know, eliminate the distractions, like, you know, get out the chess set and, and do the, you know, improvement happens at the edge of your comfort zone, as you say. Um, yes. Now I, I don't, um, I will say I'm not improving or at least, you know, it could be, could be revamping the opening repertoire or whatever, but I also like, I don't, I don't blame. I'm not shocked that I'm not improving is what I'm trying to say. Like, I understand that, that it might not happen with the approach I have. And I think that's fine for a lot of people listening. I mean, we talk a lot about uh, doing what you enjoy. So it's also okay to study some and maybe you'll get better. Maybe you won't, but if you're doing what you enjoy, it's kind of a win-win. But as Peter says, if you, if you're really dedicated and you really want to, uh, to improve and then um, and what you're doing isn't working, then then uh, try something different. Um, so, Peter, one more improvement topic, because we still got the other non chest improvement stuff that I want to pick your brain about. But let's hear a bit about the blitz, since you mentioned you're at least semi retired from competitive chess, but you're still pushing new highs. So how do you uh, new blitz highs? So how do you adapt your game for blitz, Peter? Yeah. So, um, well, one one thing I should say um one thing I should say uh, about improvement before we move on is, um, you know, I remember I remember being in a car once with like a friend and we were going to play tennis and uh, he's not really like a chess player. And I was maybe early college and he was like, I was like, he's he's like a like a doctor. And I was like, well, we're smarter now than we were before. Right. Like that. Those were the exact words I chose. Like We're smarter now. He said, Peter, I'm not sure if we're smarter now, but we're more knowledgeable. Okay, so we understand things uh, better, but but I'm not sure that we're smart, right? And when I think about chess improvement, um, at yourself, myself now, um, I'm I'm always becoming more knowledgeable of the game. I, I know more uh, yeah. than I've ever known, but I have to say this before we move on. The Chess is is both strategy, which is tends to rely a lot on knowledge, and calculation, which is the moves which you choose to to carry out your game, whether it's the strategic part um, or the game finishing part. Um, and the hardest part for me 
is training calculation because that requires me to run on all cores, right? So if I'm solving something as difficult as Volokitin stuff or, or uh, end game studies, which I know are designed to trick me and are beautiful in nature and that will take me 10 to 15 minutes to solve, um, I just don't do it, Ben. And, and, and yeah. I, I don't want to speak for you. That's me you know, too, yeah. But, but you don't do it either, right? Yeah. And, and so when I when I look at it, and I go, the reason I don't, I'm not motivated to go compete is I'm like, listen, one thing I, I know for sure, when I analyze with the 2000, I see 80 times more than they do. When I analyze with the 2500, they see 80 times more than I do or what I'm making up the yeah. number, right? But they see uh, significantly more than I do. And then you, you start wondering to yourself, you know, all these books that people are reading about strategy and everything like that, that's knowledge. That's general knowledge. This is how you approach an IQP, an isolated queen pawn. This is how you approach hanging pawns. This is how you approach this end game. This, okay, but wait a minute. That's knowledge. So even if I know that at the board, if, I, if I'm making mistake after mistake, small mistake, large blunder, doesn't really matter. If I'm not visualizing the board clearly, then I'm not saying it's all for nothing, but you're limiting your growth. So that's why when people say, do your tactics, do your tactics, do your tactics, you know, that's what everyone tells you. Everyone's like, yeah, but (laughs) what about all these books that are on my list for reading or somebody posts on Twitter? Oh, look at my book collection. Right. And it's like simple chess by Michael Steen, which by the way, I like that book, how to reassess your chess by Jeremy Silman. Love the book. Great book. Um, All these great books, my system by Nimzovich, uh, don't let Yasser Serow on you. Uh, <laughs> My System by Nimzovich or whatever. Hey, guess what? Fantastic books. Great books on strategy. But the reason why you, Ben, are not improving, the reason why I'm not excelling um, is that I need to be able to see the board as well as an I am. Mm-hmm. I need to be able to see the board as well as a GM if I want to be able to compete with them on a closer to even level. Yes, in a single game, I could win. Okay, and I have one. But if I want to get to that level, that would be the next level for me, trying to score IM norms and get to that level. Every phase of my game would have to improve, but the hardest one to improve, because I could go memorize some opening lines. Like, I'm not a dummy. I could use several different sources to do that, Chessable or uh, you know, my databases, uh, chess base or Lee chess and prepare those write notes to help me remember why moves are played. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can do that. But at the end of the day, you're going to get to a position in your game where calculation is required. I don't care if it's opening prep. I don't care anything like that. Unless you're beating somebody out of the opening with a forced line, which isn't going to happen at a 2400 level, then, you know, at some point, you're going to reach a game where you have to think clearly and calculate well. And the stronger the player, the better they are at that phase of the game. So before we before we move on, I would just say, like, I have to say that. That knowledge, uh, fundamental knowledge, strategy is important. And being able to say, okay, I've got this outpost here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my piece to the out. Okay, and so you did that. Right. So you got to the outpost and then you blundered all of your pieces away mm-hmm. or you got to the outpost and you let them undermine the outpost or you let them bounce back from, 
their strategically terrible position because you could not see what their ideas were. You could not carry out the moves necessary to nurse your advantage, right? So knowledge I have. I've analyzed 8 million gazillion games. You couldn't show me a strategic idea where I would be like, wow, that's so amazing because I've, I've seen that. all. But guess what? That doesn't make me an IM. That doesn't make me a GM because I make too many mistakes. Uh, maybe not egregious blunders, but I make too many small mistakes. So even when I have an advantage, I can't freaking keep it. You know what I mean? They're playing tenaciously. They're putting me every move. I got to be accurate. You see at the top level, Ben, like they're one little thing. And it goes from like potentially winning game to, to a draw. And we have the ability to, to monitor computers while they're playing these games. Right. So, so I would just say the reason why you and I, Ben are not improving and I, and I'm not going to speak for everyone else, but I think that if people are honest with themselves, this is probably where they fit in. The reason why you and I are not improving is we're not doing those Vola Keaton drills and endgame studies that take us 10 to 15 minutes to actually work out. We're not doing those that actually stretch our brain, make us better players, allow us to visualize the board better. We're not doing it. And that's the hard work. It's, it's uncomfortable work. And it's one thing to play for fun. I play for fun, but I do that at home. If mm-hmm. I'm going to, if I'm going to play, in a competitive tournament, I got to know that I'm in the chess gym and the chess gym is no pain, no gain. So that means if I'm like, oh, la, 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 look at this great chessable course or this new uh, new in chess book on Fabiana Caruana's Roy Lopez. Oh, man, I feel like a genius now. And then I go to a tournament. I haven't been working on my calculation. I get some plus my, plus over equals position in the opening and then I screw it up against a higher rated player because they're better than they're better at me than the, in, in every phase. Right. So oh, it's, it's great to do what you like to do, Ben. And, and I know that's that, that hits close to home with adults, right? Have fun, enjoy doing it. And that is part of the learning process, but you do reach a certain level where it's not just about knowledge. It's about your ability to perform your ability to make actual moves, right? Like the actual moves, not, not some general point, like, oh, I have the isolated pawn. I blockaded the pawn, but to actually make moves. Right. And that's where you and I are not improving. And that's why our ratings are not going up. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a hundred percent true for me. It's, it's nice of you to, to, to put yourself in the same category. I mean, for you, it's kind of like, to me, it sounds a little like you've taken your foot off the gas because you did some work that, that I haven't done. Right. But, but Peter, I, you know, we're both a bit higher rated than most of the people who will be listening to this. So um, let's sort of uh, last thing on the improvement topic, just because I think this is gold for people. Let's bring it down to say like uh, under 1600, like, because, there is lower hanging fruit the lower you go in terms of improving. So what would be the uh, applicable lesson for a listener who says, okay, you know, Peter's making some great points, but they're not going to study Vola Keaton. Like what, what did they need to study that maybe they're putting off? I mean, one thing that comes to mind from my perspective is that I often recommend uh, step two thinking ahead, which does like blindfold training. Mm -hmm. And I know there are improvers out there grinding that stuff, but, but books like that, that train visualization, all the blindfold tools on Lee chess and chess.com. But Peter, what comes to mind for you? Uh, I never did blindfold, and and even to this day, I'm I'm still terrible at blindfold chess. Um, and I know that a lot of 
uh, instructors recommend it, but I wonder how much of it they actually did. Um, I, I think a lot of people recommend it and they kind of, in theory, it sounds like a great way to help you visualize, but I'm, I wonder how much they actually did. Um, for me, it's, uh, it's solving at your, uh, not actually not at your level because you don't want something where it's too easy. Like you figure it out in like a minute, I would say whatever your level is solving puzzles, uh, you know, calculation drills, uh, solving puzzles, which take you between five and 10 minutes to solve, I think is the sweet spot for improvement because you're not, you know, going over 10 minutes to me is not very practical because even if you were in a game situation, you don't want to be spending like 30 minutes um, trying to come up with a move. So, so I feel like you have to be practical and you don't want to be discouraged. It's kind of like, if you can solve puzzles, if let's say you can, you find a book where you can solve the puzzles, 70% of the puzzles in five to 10 minutes, but you're not solving them faster. I mean, maybe once in a, once in a blue moon, you solve one quickly, but that the vast majority of them take you five to 10 minutes. And then you still don't get them fully correct all the time. I think that's the perfect uh, way to improve for even a lower rated player, because what's that, what, what that is doing is it's pushing you to look beyond the surface, like to the next kind of level. And, you know, that's why um, when you ask me about Blitz, despite the fact that I reached Blitz peaks now, um, I don't think I'm a better classical player because of that. Um, Blitz requires different skills than classical chess. I don't think it's bad for your game, by the way. I, I don't think Blitz, for example, is bad for your game. But to kind of touch on the tactical part, it's like, when I'm in a blitz game, what am I calculating? I am calculating swift two to three move, quick tactics, making sure that I'm not blundering anything. And yet I still do, of course. Mm -hmm. And I'm just trying to do that quickly. That's not classical chess. Classical chess is like, is very deep, right? So it's like, what works for you in blitz will not work for you all the time uh, in classical play. So that would be the same as like, when you're studying tactics, you do something like puzzle rush, or you do something online where the average puzzle takes you one to two minutes. You know how I, I've heard your, I've heard your podcast, you know, people like, Oh yeah. Oh man. I don't want to call out this. <laughs> okay. I, um, do a bunch of, do a flurry of tactics. Okay. As fast as you possibly can. So that way, so that way and over and over again. So that way you can just drill it into your head for me. It's like, no, learn how to think, learn how to approach a tactical situation that is unique and, and that, that one that is a struggle where like in a real chess game, you're analyzing all the possibilities that you never analyzed before that you never knew existed. I feel like in order to replicate that, you have to pick puzzles that you cannot solve quickly, that you have to think deeply about, right? In all sorts of ways, because think about it this way. I don't know about you or your viewers, but are your listeners that when I study an opening, then I get to the board and I'm like, what if they do that? What if they do that? Yeah. Like, I don't remember looking at that. What if, yeah. they, what, what if they do that? And th that's because when you're casually studying, right. Or you're doing 30 second tactics or one minute tactics, right. You're not really, you're not forcing yourself to look at it that way. When you're clicking through your opening lines, whether it's on chessable or flipping through a book and you're just 
quickly going through the lines, like E4, E5, and you're trying to memorize. Then you get to the board, and you just go to yourself, well, what if they do that? And what if they do that? And like maybe there's an answer, but you never even considered it. Yeah, right? I also forgot about the feeling. I just played one tournament, and now I'm, I got to retire again because of the Delta <laughs> variant. Um, but the feeling of not no, of not being sure if you're in book, like I forgot that was a thing. Like you're like, right. I think this is the line, but but I'm not sure. And you you don't experience, you don't care when you're playing Blitz online, you know. So no, it, yeah, it's not relevant. And then so unless you can, and even but even outside of Blitz, like tactical tactical study, right? Like it feels good to solve a puzzle quickly. Right. But I'm not sure how much that helps you improve. It's like, it's like, I feel like the sweet spot is five to 10 minutes to solve something. And, and for every person's level, what that content is, is going to be totally different. One of the books I like for the middle range player, the intermediate player, um, let's say 1400 to even up to 2000. It's kind of a, it's, it's a book that has varying difficulty. Um, is Forcing Chess Moves by Charles Hurtan. It's a, yeah, it's that's a, reasonably challenging. That's a good book, yeah. though. Yeah, and forcing moves, uh, of course, are the things that you really should you know, learn and, and uh, first to make sure that you can at least calculate lines of play that are inherently kind of forced in nature. So I, I really like that book. It is, like you said, it's a, that's why I say it's like, I would say 1,400 to 2,000. It's, it's, it's a, it varies in difficulty. Um, and... Uh, Certainly, if you were a 1600 rated player, for example, those would take you, if yeah. you got the answer right, those would take you five to 10 minutes. So I do believe that is, I have to say this before we get off. Like, I n- never did a tactics book until I was 2100. I never did. And, and, and no one's ever going to believe it. I never did a tactics server. There were no, I mean, well, I, yeah. th- th- I didn't do a tactics server. And, and, and I should have. It's not like I'm recommending people don't. I should have. But I learned through playing games and I learned through analyzing games. And then when I did Vola Keaton, that is that that is what I needed because I had never forced myself to do that. That is precisely what I needed. At a lower level, I think the same is equally good. It's like if you're 1,200, pick something that – Stretch that really pushes you to the limit. It's uncomfortable though, because you're like, you sit there after one puzzle of doing it for 10 minutes by yourself in your living room, and you're like, oh, it would be so much more fun for me to just watch some opening video by like Simon Williams or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? But the struggle is what is what helps you improve those sort of difficult, um, difficult puzzles that, but but that you can still solve. Okay, amazing stuff. Um, so many insights. I hope people are inspired. And yeah, as I said earlier, I mean, it can be a bit of a, a wake up call. Uh, and for for me, I mean, a lot of the advice I think Peter's giving is especially applicable to someone around my level. And it's it's a bit, you know, not shocking, but but sobering. Like you just have to do the work at some point um, if, if you if you want different results than you've been getting. Um Again, not that you have to. You can just enjoy chess as well. There's absolutely, that's a great way to live. Um, So, Peter, uh, I think we're going to wrap up the adult improvement episode and we're going to get on to your other topics. Um, But first, let's take a break and hear from our sponsors. Perpetual Chess is proud to be brought to you in part by Chessable.com. Chessable, of course, is known for its proprietary move trainer technology, 
which utilizes space repetition to quiz you and make sure that you remember whatever tactical patterns or opening sequences that you're working on. They have a huge catalog of great books from top flight authors, both for purchase. And if you check for their short and sweet courses, you can find tons of free content. Speaking of free content, Chessable, of course, has also recently launched an adult improvement focused chess podcast called How to Chess with yours truly hosting it. Check for it on Chessable's YouTube channel, and you can also subscribe on the podcast platforms. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And we are back. And secretly, it's two days later than when we recorded the prior segment. But we are going to keep it rolling. And our plan is Peter is just going to do some bullet points of all the fantastic improvement advice he has given. And then we're going to move on to a couple chess-related matters, talk about his book and GM norm chasing, and then wrap things up. So, Peter, how are you? And are you ready to uh, to go through a few highlights of all this excellent advice that you've dispensed? Definitely. Um, happy to be back for the uh, second leg of our interview. And uh, like, as we discussed, uh, you know, I love telling stories and, and the most memorable stories of my kind of chess journey. Um, but I know that a lot of your audience is also kind of looking for, um, I don't know, kind of a bullet point or kind of a more <clears throat> specific things on what they can do to improve their game. So I was hoping to kind of summarize those uh, here today. And then, yeah, we can talk a little bit about my book and, um, and certainly the GM and IM norm invitational, uh, tournaments that we hold here, here at the chess center. Sounds good. Yeah. People do love the listicles. So let's get to it, Peter. I mean, of course I could try it on my own, having enjoyed the conversation and been taking mental notes, but I'd like to hear what you think the most important things are. Sure. So I kind of have three things, uh, that I think are important. And I know that a lot of people say these, so I'll try to, I'll, I'll, I'll try to, um, elaborate a little bit more on what I mean. So number one is uh, play stronger players. And a lot of people say that, and uh, I think I can kind of uh, define why it's important to play stronger players. And I would just basically, uh, by the way, and that doesn't necessarily mean in classical uh, only, that could mean in rapid, that could also mean in blitz, but just playing people that are better than you. Um, one thing that allows you to, it's kind of an awakening. It allows you to understand uh, what is actually possible and what isn't if you're playing, you know, if you're playing a, um, a better player and then you, you're kind of able to tune, to fine tune your own game uh, once you recognize that. So for example, when I play against my 1300 rated students, uh, they, you know, just go immediately for an attack and they're like, let's say trying to checkmate me and it works zero times out of a hundred, right? Because it's simply too, brash like the the what they choose to do may work against their peers but it doesn't work against someone better than them and that happens at all levels so you just need to kind of know like hey what i'm doing now that's working against let's say my uh closely rated foes like whatever if i'm a 1400 what works against 1400s may not work against 1600s and after you know after some experience playing players better than you you'll start to adapt your game and realize 
hey, I've got to I've got to lift my game up. What what works against the lower rated opposition does not work against the higher rated opposition. So and that is uh, Ben, that applies at all levels. I think there's not a single time in my chess journey where I don't believe that that was useful, you know, playing better players. And so I always played. Uh, I went to tournaments and and you know how this is. If you're right at that twenty two hundred, you know, line, uh, it, let's say you're like between twenty two hundred USCF and twenty four hundred USCF, it's hard to play in the open sections oh, of yeah. these big tournaments because, uh, well, one, there are no prizes for you. Basically, I mean, you're they're they're very competitive. You know, the 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 few prizes that there are are very very competitive, and uh, you know that you're going to have to play the best players, right? So I would say if you can, you know, focus more on improvement, recognizing that, hey, yeah, if I play up, I'm probably out of the money. You know, I'm, I'm probably, you know, going to a tournament and I'm not, you know, going to win a participation award or a small underprize or anything like that. Uh, but I am going to cut my teeth with the best players. And I, and I did that regularly, and, um, and that helped me a lot. So I would say that's number one. So play better players uh, for a variety of reasons. That's going to have a positive impact on your game, especially if you pay attention to what they're doing better than you. Um, number two, we talked about this before, uh, the learner's mindset. As you become older, you're less willing to, to change things up. But changing things up is how you grow. And kind of um, exiting your comfort zone is often what needs to happen for you to grow. So I would just say that, you know, uh, if you respect the person that's training you or you respect the people you're receiving advice from uh, enough, you know, while uncomfortable, it's super important to keep your mind open to learning new things and stepping outside of your comfort zone. Good stuff. Um, So that's number two. And um, number three is, we also discussed this briefly, uh, is the element of hard work, which of course, everyone knows, but I'll get a little bit more specific on that. Um, as we discussed, to me, the hard work is are those 10 to 15 minute puzzles that we talked about, where it's like, um, I'm really trying to solve something, but it's not coming to me immediately. And I have to dig deep and really fry my brain to get the answer right. I think pushing yourself to that limit uh, is really a great way Uh, to improve. So when you're talking about hard work, not just work, I don't mean hard work, like put in the hours, casually studying an opening book or casually studying or watching a video. I really mean the work that is a little uncomfortable, that really presses you, right? That really, it might even tire you out. You know, you do three or four puzzles like that. It might take an hour and uh, you're kind of fried after that. Um, Similar, a similar feeling you may experience when you play a rated chess game right? You play the rated chess game, you're trying your hardest, firing on all cylinders and you finish your game. You're like, you know, I am exhausted, right? Like I've calculated so much, I've considered so much and trying to replicate that at home is not always easy, you know, in a casual setting. So I would say that that's very important. And I, and of course I have to say like just general chess study is also very good reading books on positional play, Many of the books that you've discussed here on your podcast are fantastic, so I won't go through all of them again. And, and you know, it's nothing against those books. It's just that, um, as we've discussed, there's a uh, knowledge element of the game. So simply knowing things like like uh, common uh, ideas, patterns, etc. But then there's the actual coming up with the moves and 
coming up with the actual concrete lines of play to carry them out. And that is for all levels, uh, the most, I would say, difficult part of the game to, to, to get better at. Yeah. Great advice. And Peter, if I may be so bold as to throw in one more, excuse me, one more bullet point from, from all of the, the knowledge that you've shared, um, what you've mentioned about studying uh, with your buddy, Dominique, about yes. you know, like pairing up and working together. I do think that finding, especially when we're talking about the hard work, as you mentioned, finding a study partner can really uh, keep you going. So uh, I don't know if you'll accept that addendum, but um, but uh, I thought it was a really good point. I totally do. And uh, I, I definitely um, attribute uh, finishing the Vola Keaton book, <clears throat> Perfect Your Chess, uh, to my work with Dominique, because I'm not sure if I would have shown up every day uh, to, to finish that book, you know, and because it's it was grueling. I, I feel like I'd probably work on a puzzle for like three to five minutes and then I'd be like, ah, oh, screw it. And then I like yeah. look at the look at the answer. So no one would be holding me accountable. Um, and so, yeah, study partner. And now with um, ease of technology and everything, it's like you, you don't even have to have a study partner that's like, okay, Dominique and I live in the same city, so we would meet up at, at a coffee shop, but you could meet somebody on Zoom just to hold each other accountable and say, hey, why don't we spend an hour together uh, doing some challenging puzzles? And and for me, it was Vola Keaton because I was 2100 at that time, but for others, it's a, it's a different tactics book. And, and I don't want to, I'm not trying to plug any books or anything. It's just, I, I think we talked about this, but Basically, a puzzle where where you're going to be challenged for ten to fifteen minutes. You don't want. I don't think you want to go beyond that. Um, but I don't think you want to solve them too easily either. And um, and I think that those uh, not only help with a tactic tactical play, but it also just helps with um, visualizing the board and 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 the calculation side of chess, which isn't always synonymous with tactics. Yeah, yeah, that's a good mm-hmm. distinction. Now, Peter, you you said you don't want to plug books, but there is one book I'd like to plug. Have you heard of this book, Everyone's First Chess Workbook? I heard of it. I heard of it, Ben. I, I it, it isn't released yet, but I've gotten uh, some sample pages of it. So I think uh, I think I think I'll probably get it when it comes out. Yeah, brand new from New in Chess. This author named FM Peter Giannatos, and yeah, we can stop playing around now. Peter sent me that book, and you know, as as regular listeners know, like Peter, I'm a former scholastic teacher, and it's amazing. I mean, it's always exactly what I wanted when when I was teaching uh, more scholastic programs. My go to books were the Laszlo Polgar Super Thick book. There's this old yellow book by Al Woolam. Um, there's the Chess Steps books. And there's uh, the Jeff Coakley books. And Peter, I put your book right there with those four. To me, it's like it's got a wide breadth of uh, topics that it covers. I I often talk about I love the fact that there's defensive puzzles in there. So we should say for listeners, it's primarily I think you said, Peter, for below 1000, like real life rating, which is often like 1300, say, Lee Chess Rapid rating. Is that right? Yeah, that would be the target for this particular book. And uh, one of the reasons we chose the the name Everyone's First Chess Workbook as opposed to the Workbook for Children or, or something like that is it really is uh, the fundamentals of board vision. So it's um, it's everything from checkmates in one, two, and, and themed patterns, like let's say the Anastasia's checkmate, uh, and all the fundamental tactics you need to know and then, so it it is, but it is not something geared toward 
an adult or geared toward a child. It really just is the content you need um, at the fundamental level. Yeah. And it is a workbook, as you point out, I believe in the introduction, like you leave room for people to write in it. So um, obviously, again, for players that level, it's great. But also, I know we have a lot of chess teachers listening and and you guys definitely need to add it to your rotation. Um, obviously, Peter's a friend of the show, but I mean, you guys hearing him talk know that if he's going to put his name on something, he's going to going to put the work in. So um, any anything else on to that people should know about the book, Peter? Yeah, so I would say from the educator's standpoint, one of the things I wanted to do um, is, uh, yeah, like as you mentioned, I wanted a traditional workbook. And in fact, when um, when it came across, uh, when the negotiations came across uh, with New and Chess, uh, you know, they had never done a traditional workbook before, where where you have like let's say lines to write answers in and and you know formatted it in such a way. And um, the workbook is also workbook size. So it's not the size of a standard new and chess book. Um, it, it is a workbook size. So the size of, let's say, a sheet of paper. And um, so the diagrams are large. They're clearly visible. And there is a clear place to put your answer. And uh, in the introduction, I talk a little bit about the uh, how writing down an answer is a second form of rehearsal and that I think it's very useful for everyone to do that when you're when you're solving. Uh, when you're doing uh, chess puzzles. Uh, in addition, every chapter is broken down into a guided practice and test portion. So let's say it's the chapter on forks. The first, let's say, nine puzzles have a guided hint. So it kind of says, hey, notice how the king and rook are an L shape away from each other or something like that, right? And then the remaining problems uh, in the chapter, a part of the, ch- the test problems would be formatted the same except no hints. And it's just to say, hey, like when I feel like I've helped you enough, now you're on your own and uh, the book gets progressively harder, but I'm always there to kind of assist you with uh, with learning each theme and each topic. Yeah. And we should say it's available on Chessable as well, right, Peter? Definitely. And uh, while in Chessable, you don't get the writing element, you still get the ability to actually move the pieces out. Uh, there are additional comments to each move uh, because that's the nature of Chessable. Like I can I can add comments to every move. And and as you review it, you can you can see uh, a comment basically for literally every move, like even the most trivial move uh, has has a comment. And uh, there is a video option, too. So if you'd rather Uh, depending on the age or, you know, for me, I wasn't, uh, my reading comprehension isn't my, my best, uh, you know, attribute, you know, I I get distracted very easily. So videos um, are a little bit, I I like, I like to solve, but I I don't like to read. Uh, So videos are usually better for me. And I know a lot of other people are like that. But of course, the text is there as well, uh, just like it is in the book. Uh, So yeah, depending on how people like to, um, you know, depending on how people like to do things, there's a physical book produced by New and Chess, which will be out in early September. And the Chessable course is already live with uh, with the video option as well. Yeah. And for all the chess moms and dads listening, uh, the Chessable course could be a good thing to go through with your your kid, especially if they're again, if they're on the newer side to, to chess, if they're already fast tracked and playing like, uh, you know, uh, open sections of nationals and stuff like that, then there's plenty of other books for them to get. But this is a, this is a great addition to the marketplace for, for newer players. So glad to see you take the time to do that, Peter, because I know you're a busy man. 
Um, so the last topic, we got to bring the heat, Peter. Um, yes. So I, of course, I'm sure you did too, because uh, about, I, I forgot to uh, note the date, but I'm going to say it was three weeks to a month ago. Uh, the New York Times came out with an article by uh, Ivan Nechapurenko and Misha Friedman. And the article is called The Dark Side of Chess, Payoffs, Points, and 12-Year-Old Grandmasters. Um, and the article is about a number of things, but it was published not that long after Abhimanyu Mishra became the youngest grandmaster in the world. Um, so it touched on that, and it touched on uh, Sergei Karyakin, who was the prior youngest grandmaster in the world. Of course, this has been a landmark record that some of the giants in chess history have broken, such as Bobby Fischer and Judith Polgar preceding um, these individuals. Um, and basically, it uh, dug up some good dirt and had some solid reporting on certain parts, and then other parts we felt weren't as well reported. So, Peter, let's uh, l walk me through it. The day this article came out, how soon did you get a text message? Right. Yeah. I, I Because the Charlotte Chess Center norm events were uh, featured in a line or two uh, of the article, because uh, one in the United States, by far, we're the norm, we're the norm round robin capital here in uh, in Charlotte. And um, and of course, Abimanyu had played in several of our norm events as well. So I'm sure they figured that out when they were digging into his tournament history. So even the slightest note uh, about the Charlotte Chess Center gets people text messaging me, right? So I, uh, you know, here's, I check this article. You're in the New York Times. I say, oh my gosh, the New York Times, you know, that's that's big, right? That's that's exposure. And uh, so I'm reading the article and I, and I just have to openly be honest about it. I, I'm disappointed with the way the article was written because like you said, it's called, uh, it's called the dark the dark side of chess. And, you know, I, I was thinking maybe I should write a counter article called the uh, dark side of journalism, but right. no, it's like the dark side of chess, uh, payoffs points and 12 year old grandmasters. So um, what they, I guess the title is fine. If you're going to kind of stick to the Karyakin story, because it seems that uh, I, I had heard about the Karyakin okay, situation. We, sh we should say, I think a lot of people will have read the article. The date was July right. 16th, 2021, by the way. Um, and of right. course, I mean, July 13th. And of course, we'll link to the article and anyone listening, if you're like super um, fastidious, you can pause it, read the article and come back. Um, but we should say explicitly what the Karyakin allegations are. Right. So uh, Karyakin, who prior to Abhimanyu, as, as you mentioned, was the world's youngest grandmaster ever. And according to some evidence and also hearsay, because I, I heard about this as I was playing chess too, like this before this article came out, I was already kind of aware, but of course I never dug into it or had interest to, because of course, Karyakin uh, is a you know former world championship contender. And I think he's kind of um, made, you know, he has a, fantastic chess career to stand behind. So whether he was the youngest grandmaster or not, it doesn't, to me, it's not that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but uh, it, it appears that maybe his father uh, had arranged for certain results so that he could get that final grandmaster norm and become the uh, world champion or the uh, youngest grandmaster uh, in the world. And it appears that there was, let's say, some game fixing uh, in that particular round robin tournament where he earned his final, where Karyakin earned his final norm. Yeah. Um, I, I, uh, 
cut and pasted a few quotes to share with you guys. Um, one is, it's it's an open secret in chess that many players cut side deals with tournament organizers and other top competitors that help them achieve norms that they might have struggled to get legitimately. And then, as Peter says, they they specifically, to my mind, found po- possibly some new reporting on Karyak and having replayed a game and replayed it in Blitz in order to get his final GM norm after having lost it in Classical. Um, but but then they go on to make it, as Peter said, his reputation and all that he's achieved stands for itself. And they, they kind of make it seem like everything that he subsequently achieved was a direct result of uh, of earning that, of winning that title. Now, of course, it does put some... It does put the wind at your back. You know, you may get a few more invitations and stuff like that. But I mean, any serious chess player knows that the the quality of your moves is what determines the outcome of your games over a wide sample. He's not buying every single game. Um, so that was um, a minor um, quibble. But then, as Peter says, the the Abimanyu uh, story is where it gets even bigger. And Peter, I'll toss it back over to you in one sec. But one other thing I just wanted to throw in, because since you mentioned the title, which is rather salacious, but we do, of course, want to mention that often writers for periodicals don't write the title. So we're not necessarily castigating the writers for that particular thing. But as for Abimanyu, I felt it was quite unfair, Peter, and you could speak more about uh, why I know you're even more qualified to uh, address this. Well, that was the part that bothered me about the article, because if you're um, if you're sharing facts about something that happened, uh, then that's great. You know, that's uh, that's what we, we we need to hear the facts. Right. We, we always want to know what the reality is and what the truth is about something. So if they did some investigative journalism, I know that they talked to uh, or, or have some quotes from the grandmaster who uh, Karyakin had played. And, uh, and 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 so I should say that while. Maybe that's a bit of an unethical reflection on Karyakin's father and that, of course, we shouldn't have um, situations like that occur. Uh, it's nothing against Karyakin because he was a child. He was a child at that time. And uh, it doesn't give the concept of max, match fixing uh, a pass. But I should just say that it's not really a reflection upon Karyakin uh, either. So I, I, so I should I should say that. Um the part I didn't like is not that you're exposing the truth. The part I didn't like was running the parallel between that circumstance and how Abimanyu achieved his norms. Um, because by running the stories alongside one another in the same article, where you make really the article isn't about the youngest grandmaster achievement, but it's more about, I mean, literally the title is about like shady, shady acts in chess. And the whole article is about that. Um, I felt also, like you did, that it was unfair to Abimanyu because there's no evidence to suggest that that any match fixing or any rules were broken for Abimanyu, uh, you know, w- when Abimanyu achieved his necessary norms and rating. By the way, yeah, uh, I have to I have to tell uh, people that uh, when you're getting uh, your grandmaster title uh, approved. Uh, you have to have a 2,500 FIDE rating. It can be a live rating, something that you once hit and and went below. So it can be a peak 2,500 FIDE rating. And these three, uh, let's say norms. I, I you should you should probably Google exactly what a norm is, but it's a it's a level of performance in a particular high level event. Yeah, well said. And um, 
you know, a couple other points worth highlighting, as I think you you messaged me um, when we were corresponding. Um, they mention kind of, again, sort of uh, salaciously that Abhimanyu Mishra um, in the tournaments where he ultimately did earn, earn the norms in uh, Budapest, which is well-known place, uh, you know, even grander history than Charlotte of people going there to play yes. small invitational tournaments, hoping to earn norms. And they, they noted that the average rating in these tournaments in Budapest was uh, lower than Peter's tournaments that Abhimanyu also has played in in Charlotte. But why is that not relevant, Peter? Yeah, well, it's not it's not relevant because in, in people's minds, it's relevant. But but uh, norms are based on performance rating. So if the average field is a lower rated, the uh, norm me, if you will, has to score a higher score. Right. Because because if the if the average rating is lower, they have to perform at a much higher level. So at our events, we try to keep uh, norms for grandmasters at six and a half points out of nine. But if you lower the rating average, players may have to score seven out of nine or seven and a half out of nine or eight, you know, eight out of nine and so on and so on. And, and everyone knows that when you're playing masters of any kind, that type of score uh, is so difficult to achieve. So uh, it is a rating calculation, a performance rating calculation. So um, dare I say, if you have a section full of washed up GMs, like everyone likes to to call, you know, just to, to say like 2,400 rated GMs, uh, that's not still, that's not going to cut it because um, the other seven players in the field are going to have to make up for some of that lost rating. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't want to confuse people with how it all works because I realize I've been in this sphere for a very long time. I mean, about uh, norms and constructing norm events and how they kind of work. But um, if the rating average of the field is lower, the player has to perform still at the same level, which means he, they would have to score more points in the event. Yeah. So it's yeah. basic, it's basically a moot point. Now, you know, they also sort of suggest that these tournaments, they, uh, as I recall, there was more um, more innuendo about the tournaments in Budapest in terms of like a lot of the regular participants being, uh, I guess, to put it charitably, not motivated. And uh, to put it less charitably, perhaps, again, some sort of uh, bribery or game fixing involved at times. Um, right. And again, with Karyakin, to their credit, they kind of found a smoking gun, it seemed. I mean, they had right. people on the record, but that was right. kind of the only case. And then they made these kind of broad extrapolations, um, right. which, again, like, OK, you know, it's a bit unfair to chess. But more importantly, this is a kid we're talking about who just right. achieved an amazing thing, you know, right. just uh, an incredible accomplishment. So, uh, yeah, a bit frustrating and I'm sure frustrating for his family to be cast in that light. Absolutely. And, you know, I can say that, you know, I've played Abhimanyu uh, in, in rated classical tournament games uh, before he was such a such a monster. And so I've known his uh, uh, father in passing uh, for a while. And uh, and I've known Abhimanyu since he was like seven when we play. You know, he was the youngest expert or something like that when he's seven or eight. And um, and uh, and then, you know, uh, at some point began was eligible to participate in our norm tournaments here in Charlotte and and participated and I can say that there has you know never uh, there was never any uh, ethical or moral 
kind of things in question when dealing with Abhimanyu's father. There was never a like, oh, you know, hey, you know, he just needs to kind of draw this game to secure a norm or anything like that. Can you talk to the player? No, there, we, first of all, we don't do that. But second of all, it was never even in the discussion. And so what, uh, and I never even got that from him, you know, personality wise and stuff like that. So why I didn't like the article is here we have an, you know, an American born child achieving a fantastic, uh, I mean, like an, it's a fantastic achievement, the, the youngest grandmaster in the world. And I see his story being run alongside a story of one that's, uh, that's shady. And I just don't like it because there's no evidence to suggest that a similar thing was done just because Abhimanyu participated in norm tournaments. And even though the article, uh, I guess, uh, I, I guess the article showed the Charlotte chess center in a more positive light, let's say than the Budapest tournament. Still, I didn't like that. They ran the parallel there because there's no evidence to suggest that any, that anything like that took place at the tournament. Now, to the point of unmotivated players playing in the tournament, like let's say uh, grandmasters who are uh, lower rated grandmasters, uh, maybe they're not as motivated or, or able to play at their peak rating anymore. Remember that as their rating goes down from these events, right? If they're not as motivated, if they cannot play as well as they once could, that difference in rating needs to be made up elsewhere. And um, it's not just as simple as saying you got to have three GMs and then the rest of the field can be whatever, right? right? You have to have a certain, like as mentioned, certain rating averages so that you can have certain performance rating needed for the grandmaster norm achievement. So um, Mike, you know, the, the point of match fixing, uh, I've seen it in my lifetime where even at open tournaments in the final round, players will agree to uh, drawing a game or throwing a game to secure a prize fund. Uh, that could certainly happen for a norm achievement as well uh, at a tournament, at even an open tournament. So I feel like in these round robins, FIDE and and the players and organizers, you know, FIDE has to trust their organizers. They have to trust us enough to say, we're not going to allow a bribe to take place in our tournament, right? You're, you're not going to come to me, Ben, and say, I want to play your IM tournament. I'll give you $1,000 if you can negotiate with the IMs to throw their games so that so I can get my... That's, you know, that's not going to happen uh, here in Charlotte. And I don't know what happens everywhere else, uh, but there's no evidence to suggest that it happened in Budapest. And so that's why I didn't like the way the article was written. If there was evidence to suggest that something like that had taken place, then sure, then show me, show me the money. Yeah. But I just didn't see that. And it bothered me because here we have a kid, right? They're shaming a kid for achieving something so great. And they, and they're just running a parallel between something that Karyakin did uh, a couple decades ago. Yeah. Well said. And, uh, for the record, I mean, Peter and I, I'm sure we both know a lot of people who the people who know the chess world well, who reacted the same way. And that's not to say that the norm system is perfect by any means. And as Peter said, like everyone who's been around chess for a long time has heard stories of match match fixing. So 
it's not to say that everything's perfect, but to to cast aspersions in this particular case and to, you know, use someone's name without evidence um, was was not a great look, in my opinion. And, yeah, you just feel bad for the kid. And, Peter, I wanted to zoom out a little bit because it also gets to the larger topic of sort of if Grandmaster titles are being uh, diluted, um, mm-hmm. depending on if you check, if you trust uh the New York Times fact checkers or the New Yorker fact checkers. There's between 1,700 to 1,900 uh, grandmasters in the world these days. Um, there have been different reports. And of course, uh, world champion finalist uh, Jan Nepomnici, a couple days after Abimanyu won the title, actually took to Twitter and said, I'm dazzled with the new record, so I'd like to suggest some changes to the order of conferring titles. For example, one of the norms, Grandmaster norms, must be fulfilled in an open tournament, and the Mm -hmm. participation of 2,400 GM luminaries in stamping new titles should finally be limited. So, And in that same New York Times article, they had Nigel Short, who, by the way, of course, affiliated with FIDE, saying Mm -hmm. like they should just get rid of Grandmaster titles. So it all seemed like a very sort of sharp reaction to this this what's been a sort of slowly growing in the discourse theme of uh the grandmaster title being diluted where what do you think about that independent of of the abimanyu allegations peter um yeah so i don't know like in my life um i have met and uh played um what people would consider weak gms and i can assure you that uh i don't i mean maybe somebody as strong as Nepo could say this person's a weak GM. But for me, um, I don't find any GM to be weak. And uh, despite the fact that maybe, let's say, their rating has dropped from where it was 20 years ago, um, that's where I would actually say, Ben, and I don't want to go off on a tangent too much here, is you get get that balance between knowledge and and uh, the application of the knowledge with con- with concrete moves, I feel like the older players um, that's where they're that's where they're unable to kind of hang with the younger GMs. So, like in our tournaments and stuff, we see that a lot of times. You know, if we have let's say a twenty four fifty rated GM playing a young twenty five hundred GM, we see that uh, the game goes pretty fine in the uh, opening and middle game, but maybe the uh, older player gets a little uh, tired later on in the game, or maybe their calculation isn't as good as it once was, but a GM is still a GM. And I applaud them for continuing to play, even though they know they're not at their, at the level they once were. And uh, I'm not one of those people. Um, As we discussed, I believe that I'm not as, I would not perform as well as I could when I was trying my hardest. So I choose not to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I but I applaud them for playing. So as far as the there being more GMs and whether or not we should, um, the GM title is being diluted, I don't think it is. I think that players are becoming more knowledgeable. Players are becoming better on a larger scale. The resources are there for people to become better. So as a consequence, as a consequence we see more GMs um, being created. Now, I do think, I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to, let's say, a super GM title because there's already kind of an unofficial super GM title that we regularly use in conversation. Uh, like, you know, Nepo, for example, is a, is what we would consider a super GM, though that's not a actual FIDE title. Um, so something something could be said about maybe even a bar higher um, yeah. for for the very best. 
Yeah, I agree. And just just to add a few more points, I mean, number one, so whatever the number is, 1700 to 1900, if you think of Grandmaster as like a rough proxy for being like a professional chess player, which of course we know that in terms of people making their income from actually playing chess, it's going to be a much smaller number. But still, if you compare it to other like sports, for lack of a better comparison, I mean, there's something like 500 players in the NBA, and then you have all the other leagues across the globe. Um, you know, soccer slash football, there's got to be like well more than 2000 professional soccer players. So if you just compare it on that footing, I don't think it's like an out of bounds number. Now, of course, legends like Nigel Short and Jan Nepomnici, they've seen the number explode in their lives. Like, I mean, in the 1980s, it was like 100 or something, you know, so it has grown exponentially. I see where they're coming from. And I'm also not opposed to something like a Super GM title, although I have seen some people do seem to be opposed to it. And yeah, I it just I don't feel that that strongly about it. But but the bottom line is it is a valid question, you know, sort of independent of the norm fixing. And the other valid question, Peter, we're going long, but I mean, we just haven't had a chance and you're the perfect person to address this is whether norms themselves need to be a thing. Um, and in my mind, it might just be that holding a rating for a certain number of games might be a better um, way to to uh, grant titles because it kind of eliminates the unnecessary expense of traveling. I mean, this could cut into your bottom line of traveling to certain tournaments um, and also may make it harder for any impropriety in terms of norm buying. What do you think, Peter? Yeah, so I, I should actually say that one of the reasons why norm tournaments are a thing is because, you know, the the norm criteria is sometimes very hard to achieve in the open tournament circuit. So for example... Yeah. Uh, you know this very well, just in the last, uh, in my chess life, which has been a, a little over 15 years, um, I have seen, we're very fortunate in the United States to have universities that have chess programs and, and growing chess programs, right? So we've got, I, I won't label them all, but we have universities in the United States who like uh, uh, athletic programs, recruit grandmasters and top players from all over the world to come to American universities and play chess on scholarship. And uh, we're very lucky to have those players in the United States because what those players bring along with them is their foreign FIDE federation, which is so important when one is trying to achieve a norm. And prior to those uh, foreign players, when American, when top uh, grandmasters would leave, uh, you know, their country of origin, wherever, wherever it was, like my coach, Grandmaster Alexander Shabalov, uh, they switched to the United States um, Federation, their FIDE Federation, because it it granted them more opportunities to play in, let's say, the U.S. Championship, which was still better than, let's say, the Latvian Championship or or whatever. So, um, so even the foreign players uh, who who then relocated to the United States didn't always bring their FIDE titles. So we have this huge country of uh, in the United States, but not a lot of. Uh, foreign players. So prior to Charlotte, most people were going to Budapest. I mean, I, I knew a lot of American players, almost every American player, including my good friend, Daniel Naroditsky, who earned a Grandmaster Norm in uh, Budapest. Um, almost every American born titled player had at least played once in Budapest in a Norm tournament. And that's not because there aren't strong players in the US. They're trying to meet that foreign player uh, criteria that's necessary to score a norm. Um, 
for example, there's a player who's playing our next Norm tournament over Labor Day, Nicholas Theodoro. He's an international master rated 2570 wow. FIDE. And he's an IM still. He wins every American Open tournament and never gets a norm, even <laughs> if it's nine rounds, because he doesn't play enough. Uh, f- he doesn't play enough foreign-rated players. In fact, he played a tournament in Greece recently, his country of origin. Uh, he's a student at um, uh, not Mizzou, not Webster, uh, St. Louis, Louis University. Yeah, yeah, and and. Uh, he he played he played a large open tournament in Greece, killed it. Great tournament, didn't get a norm because didn't play enough. So he can't he, he's struggling to get it in the U.S. because even though American players carry a foreign federation, you still need three different federations represented. Um, so you can't they can't all be American players, and so part of the reason these norm tournament exists is because of this very strict like location-based criteria that FIDE has for norms, like you have to play foreign players. And so if it wasn't for that, then I believe that the uh, the need for norm tournaments would actually go down quite a bit. I mean, there's still an argument to be made about playing a pool of players that's similarly rated, which you wouldn't be guaranteed in an open tournament. You could go from playing in a 2,500 to a 1,900. You know what I mean? And there's some rating ins- instability there. Um, but it's really the norm tournament, um, the norm tournament business, if you will, is mainly based on this uh, element of this criteria where players are required to play players from different federations to achieve their norms. And, um, so as far as changing the criteria, uh, I don't know, you know, like think about it. I mean, if you're like if you're an American player, are you forced to travel to Europe so that you can play enough foreigners, or is it okay that you can play a norm tournament in Charlotte, in, in you know domestically, and you know a tournament is formed with uh, a correct criteria? You just have to perform like a grandmaster, yeah, a very strong grandmaster, I should say, to get a norm. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's still. I think just forget the norms, just. Achieve yeah. 2,500 feet, I stay over it for 50 games or whatever it may be. And you're a grandmaster, you know? Right. And, and yeah, and I haven't, to be honest, I haven't even thought about it. What, what I'm good at is I, I read the rules, right? Yeah. I look at the rules and I say, this is what needs to happen for players. This is what, you know, these are the rules that they have in place. Now, you know, Nigel short, um, and, and I don't know Nigel personally, but I, I, I'm, I respect him as a, as a chess player, but he's in FIDE. Yeah. So what's he telling? Like, <laughs> exactly. what's he talking about? Like, yeah. it's like, it's like he's um, crapping on the system, which really those within FIDE need to adjust if they want to adjust. Uh, blaming organizers or blaming players for uh, creating events that follow the rules developed by the institution is kind of silly to me, to be yeah. honest with you, Ben, because it's it's like like we're just following the rules and the players are just following the rules. They Listen, you want an achievement, right? So you, you just want to achieve what you want to achieve and you'll do it legally, right? You'll do it without breaking the rules, uh, without uh, some sort of, uh, you know, without break, breaking the sort of ethical code, but you know, however the rules adapt, everyone will adapt and follow, yeah. right? Um, if you have a 50 game rule, 
for example, like hold your rating at 2,500 for 50 games. So then you have unethical situations where I organize a tournament where everyone's 2,500 feet and everyone just draws the hell out of their games (laughs) and then keeps their 2,500 rating. So no matter what system you have, there will always be, um, there will always be, you know, something formed so that players can legally um, obtain what they're set out to it to obtain. And that's just like the real world, you know, not just chess. Yeah. That's an excellent point. There's no panacea for sure. Um, Okay. Last thing, Peter, I do, I do have to ask you the hard hitting question. So you mentioned of course that you obviously wouldn't do anything improper as the organizer of the Charlotte uh, chess tournaments. And I, you know, I have zero doubt about that, but have you ever been offered any sort of bribe to, or to, you know, put your thumb on the scale somehow in one of uh, the norm events that you guys have run? No. And, and I think, and I think the reason, I think the reason for that, and, and I should say that there have been norm tournaments where no one has achieved the norm. There, there have been norm to, we've run 22 norm tournaments. There have been tournaments where no one's achieved a norm. There have been tournaments where a draw in the final round secures a norm and the player did not get the draw. Yeah. There have been tournaments uh, with John Bartholomew, for example, on just to hit close to home for, for people listening. Um, who needed a victory in the last round and didn't get it and, and, and lost out on a norm. He, you know, he half a point wouldn't do it. He needed, he needed a win. Right. And so, you know, there are plenty, we broadcast the games live. The standings are live. We post pictures. You can come to the chess center. If you want, if you're really that interested, the New York times can come on down to the chess center and we'll happily give them a press pass to hang around if they like. Um, We're public about it. We're open about it. And I think people know, see, the reputation that the Chess Center has is bigger than just the norm tournaments. We have scholastic programming, a local program. I am not going to risk that um, for a $500 bribe or whatever it may be. So people don't even ask, even if they're thinking it. Um, And I don't even think at, at most people's heart, they want to earn it that way, to be honest, Ben. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't personally want to earn such a thing illegitimately because I'd have to live the rest of my life knowing that I'm a piece of, I'm a piece of garbage for doing it and that I didn't actually achieve it. Right. So I don't want to live my life like that. And I don't think most people do. Um, But I think people recognize that the chess center is bigger than just these norm tournaments and that they wouldn't basically even dare ask me because they know that I would just go crazy. So um, no, no one has ever asked me. I'm very fortunate because that would be a very awkward situation. And I don't know how I would, uh, well, I know I wouldn't accept it. I just don't know beyond that how I would, yeah, how I would handle it. You know, yeah. whether it, whether I would, whether I would submit an ethics complaint, for example, uh, because we've never had a situation like that, and and we keep it that way. So, as far as our norm tournaments go, um, I'm happy for anyone uh, to investigate uh, our events, talk to people who play in our events, look at the results come on down to the chess center. We have another norm event over Labor Day. Come on down to the chess center, see what they're like, um, you know, and uh, experience it for themselves. But they're totally legitimate tournaments. And yes, just like in an open event, will there be some quick draws and stuff? Yes, but they're not orchestrated. They're not orchestrated draws. We don't control the players, nor do we attempt to control them. If they agree to a draw, that's on them. And remember that in our norm events, you need a plus four score for a norm. And so a draw is not going to get you there. Um, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, 
it, everyone is very similarly rated. So whether you draw the 2480 GM and then in the next round, you got to play a 2480 IM that's hungry and been studying and has 800 coaches, you can roll the dice on that one, right? So a quick draw here and there that happens in the open tournament circuit, that happens in our norm tournaments. We don't necessarily like it. It doesn't provide good content for the viewers, but strategy on who you'd like to draw, who you'd like to try to beat, that's strategy, Ben. It's it's competitive strategy, right? You're playing in an event and you're like, okay, I'm looking at this 10-man field. Who are the four whipping boys, <laughs> right? Who, who am I going after to try to win these games? And that's strategy. And so if you get to the game and you think drawing a player is your best result, right? Is, is the best thing for your event, right? Is you, for, for in, you believe that drawing is your best way to your norm. That's on you. That's your strategy. Maybe you're wrong. Maybe you need that extra half a point in the end. You don't know. You don't mm. know how the tournament's going to go. So, so I don't know what to say, Ben. I, the, the reason why I angrily texted you when the article came out and I'm like, get me on this show is because, <laughs> is because, I didn't like how it made it seem. And I, and, and actually it wasn't just the article, but me reading the comments, which is probably a mistake. Yeah. Right. But, um, yeah. But that's a good gauge because it's not going right. to be all super informed, you know, people. Right. So, yeah. yeah. And me reading the comments, it's kind of like, whoa, 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 everyone slow down. So yeah. norm tournaments can be totally legitimate tournaments. And as far as I'm aware are, I've never been a part of a norm tournament. I've played two norm tournaments as a player, not my own. Uh, in uh, played one in St. Louis and one in Montreal uh, as a player. I am Norm Tournament. Never, no. Uh, in fact, one of the players uh, just needed. I think um, he needed to draw me or beat me to keep his Norm Tournament, and I beat him. There was never ever a discussion about can you, bro? Can you just let me off the hook with <laughs> right, a draw yeah. here or whatever? I'm like, I'm there to play too. Yeah. Right. Um. So. Uh, I've played in norm tournaments. We've organized over 20 of them. We've organized plenty of open nine round tournaments for norms. I've never had a bribe. I've never had a, no one, you know, come to me with a bribe. I've never heard of one being offered to a player around us. Right. Cause it could like, for example, if you and I are, are destined to play, I could just come straight to you and say, Hey Ben, can you give me the game for 500 bucks? Uh, I've never, I've never experienced that in one of these events. So the parallels that were drawn, I thought were misleading, and that's why I wanted to get on the on the show. If Nigel Short, if uh, even even the the FIDE president mentioned that there was some things they didn't like about the norm events, uh, change it. Yeah, change the rules. Change it. Yeah, because because uh, we are going to look at the FIDE rules. We're going to organize our tournaments on the FIDE rules, and we're not going to break the rules. And if the FIDE rules adjust, we will adjust. And, uh, and so will everyone else be forced to. So if, if they're listening, um, and they don't find the, they don't find the system to be, uh, the way they'd like it, they are the ones in power. They have the ability to push that change. We're kind of little guys in the large scheme of things. We run the events, but we have no political power, no political influence to change anything. So that's it. That is what it is. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad that you cleared that up. I think you did a great job. I mean, again, there it's not no one saying that the system is perfect necessarily, um, but definitely the, you know, the the article was a bit unfair in some places, and some of the the, the nature in which uh, complaints about the system are being lodged seem a bit unfair. But um, but Peter, it's been great as always. 
Uh, so we should wrap up. The book is called uh, <laughs> Everyone's First Chess Workbook. Thank you. I apologize. It's getting late here. The book is called Everyone's First Chess Workbook, available on Chessable, available in paperback. You can check out a free preview on New in Chess's website. Um, well, it might not be available in paperback the moment you listen, but coming very soon. Um, so, Peter, been great as always. Thank you for sharing your uh, your chess improvement tips and your norm knowledge and all the rest. Yeah, thank you so much, Ben, for for having me on. I'd like to say in regard to the book, I just did a book tour um, signing down in Jacksonville, Florida, for the Chess of Chess uh, for Charity group down there. They're doing great things. Uh, there are partners, let's say, in the southeast, along with Grandmaster Ben Feingold and his club in Atlanta. And we're really trying to do big things for chess in the U.S. and and really build chess in the southeast, which is a which is a kind of region that hasn't um, really flourished as much as other places. So uh, I wanted to give them a shout out and kind of um, our partners in in uh, helping us grow chess, uh, and we work closely with with them. And um, yeah, and 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 so more than the norm tournaments and and more than my book and more than just general chess improvement, you know, we'd, we'd like to. We're working on we're working on growing the game in our region. So that's awesome. Yeah, and if anyone wants uh, Peter's uh, advice or wants to do a similar event, not hard to find, right, Peter? You're on. Uh, you know, obviously, there's the the Charlotte Chess Center website. Um, is there any other way people should look to reach you? Uh, for me, they, they you know my my email is public on the Charlotte Chess Center website, and uh, I have a Facebook, but I try to keep it with people that you know. I actually know. Um, and then they can, but, but anyone can feel free to email me. And, um, and then the chess center itself has, uh, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and we're relatively active on there with, you know, um, posts, uh, especially during our norm events. Uh, we have a lot, you know, who's achieving the norms, who's still in contention and all the other events that, that we do here at the club. So yeah, definitely can follow the Charlotte Chess Center on social media. Feel free to email me directly at my direct email address, which is on the, which is on the Charlotte Chess Center website openly. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I hope everyone uh, likes what we're doing here in Charlotte. And then for those who, um, who are able to obtain the book or the chessable course, I hope you enjoy that. Uh, as well. And I hope that that's, uh, you know, a good addition to the educational tools in chess. Yeah, it definitely is. All right. Uh, thank you again, Peter. Um, it's been a lot of insight and much appreciated. Thank you, Ben. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible, most of all to my producer, Matthew Passy. I also would like to thank everyone who helped spread the word about the show. Did you guys know that there's still people who have not heard of the Perpetual Chess Podcast? There's even chess players who have not heard of the Perpetual Chess Podcast. So we need to fix that. And the ways to do that include writing positive reviews on podcast platforms or YouTube comments telling friends, all that stuff makes a difference in helping spread the word about the show. But of course, I most of all want to thank people who provide financial support to the show. Without you all, Perpetual Chess would not be possible. So without further ado, I would like to give thanks to the following people and entities. Chessable.com, David Lazarus of LazmanChess.com, coach of Dave's Young Tigers on Lee Chess, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Abysmal Depths of Chess Blog, Adapta Interactive Web Designs and Services, Apprentice Twitch Channel, Anidi Deer, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porteau, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, the Charlotte Chess Center, the Chess Central's Chess Blog, ChessMood.com, Chris Flanagan, Chris Lott, 
Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel He, Danny Davidson, David Mitchell, David Schreiber. I am Dimitri Snyder. I am Eric Rosen, Eric Tam, Farhan Thawar, Barasawaf, Gary Foreman, Glenn Downing, Greg Harfst. I am Greg Shahadi, Gregory Gullick, James Holyhead, James Kennedy, Jay Garrison, Jeff Martinson, Jeff Schaefer, Jeremy Nielsen, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John MacArthur, Kevin Forsyth, Kevin O'Callaghan, King Cell, the King's Crusher YouTube channel. Lucio Casada Silva, the law officers of Stuart Katz, Matthew Feeney, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mr. Mike Shahadi, the famous Mr. Dodgy, the Nerd Nays Twitch channel, Grandmaster Peter Prohaska, Peter Sodi, Philip Flummins, the Playmore Chess Academy of the Hamden Chess Club, Reuven Fisher, Ross Crossland, Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stefan Kelty, Stephen Martinez, Sven Gerson, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of StrongChess.com, Todd Kennedy, The Vintage Patsers, which is a chess.com improver group, Wayne Beam, William Hogarth, and I also would like to thank Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Al Hastings, Alan and Maggie Sue, Alex Pejas, Alexander Markovitz, Antonio Cancino, Antonio K. Leonfort, FM Andre Terakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Angus McLeod, Barry Hessian, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Bill Trammell, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard, Lynn, Brian, Chase, Brian, Mullis, Bruce Scott, Brian Tillis of Palm Beach Chess, Cameron Davis, Chad Hilton, Chesspatzer, Spain, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Kiefer, Chris Wayne Scott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach J's Chess Academy, Costa Carras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Blaskotschek, David Brown, David Hamblin, David Cramley, Dalen Shelton, Tennis Parrish, FM Donnie Ariel, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ed Mead, Edwin Rodriguez, Ethan Smith, Evan Rosenberg, Ewan Richardson, Ian Mason, Felipe Melo Padilla, Fox Valley Chess Club of Aurora, Illinois, Francis Latarte Lavoir, Dr. Frank Tortoris, Frank Zananis, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Gautam Narula, Gene Stewart, George Harris, Giovanni Russo, Han Shute, Harish Srinivasan, Howard Bihan, Jacob Kovach, Jason Apollo, Jason Murray, Jacques Perry, James Aspinwall, James Benastio, James Muir, Jason Woolham, Jadeep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Hoyland, Jerry Wells, Jesse Takumos, Jesse McNulty, Jim Ratliff, Joe Dasano, Joe Valdez, Joel Thomas Ramos, John McAdams, John Tully, Juan Almagar, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, John Quist, John Tully, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, WGM Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Pryor, I am Kostya Kavutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Cook, Larry Ryforth, Laura Boyovsky, Macaulay Peterson, Maria Amalyanovas, aka Photo Chess, Mark Shaves, Mark Fitzpatrick, Mark Miller, Mark Wilkins, Marco Bulatovich, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, Matthias Plock, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Gobel, Nate Solon, Neil Bruce, Negmat Malajanov, Nicholas Isabel, Olaf Mueller Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Cassie Passanen, Paul Blaine, Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, 
Queenside Management Limited of Switzerland, Randall Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hallenbach, Richard Tucker, Robert Callahan, Robert Titi, Robert Turner, Rory Coleman, Rory Yearwood, Ryan Berg, The Say Chess YouTube Channel and Publishing Empire, Scott McKinnon, Scott Rose, Sean Krauss, Sebastian Finsterwalder, Sergey McCagan, Seth Ruzica, Sean Tracy, Silver Knights in Richmond, Stefan Roller, WGM Tatev Abrahamian, Thomas Brown, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, FM Timothy Wall, Tobiah Rex, Tom Edsel, Tommy Farron, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Vishnu Srikumar, William Brock, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and Jivko Storyanov. Thanks to you all for the support, and we will catch you all next week. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.